following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. And welcome back again to the South End Zone, uh, boys and girls, and a special episode this week, a uh, quick segment. We have a guest on again, and you know him from his work at ESPN and SEC as an analyst and the McElroy and Kublik in the morning show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Cole Kublik. Cole, thanks for coming on. Appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely, Eric. Appreciate you having me, man. Glad to be with you. So the uh, real quick, I know you got, you're a busy guy, so we'll hop right into it and talk about Auburn football, uh, obviously something near and dear to your heart. And for 2023, uh, the big question coming out of spring ball, obviously, I will just start with the obvious one at the quarterback position. Robbie Ashford, I thought, was a guy that maybe Hugh Freeze could do some things with in terms of physical ability and skill set. And at the conclusion of spring ball, they end up bringing in Peyton Thorne from Michigan State. So a couple of questions with that. Do you think they were actively looking for someone or did he just kind of fall into their lap? No, I think they were actively looking because I, th- I think if you're talking about you know managing an offense, running an offense, um, and, and executing an offense, you know Robbie has shown that he's not quite ready for all of that just yet. Now, skill set wise, absolutely, he, he's a dynamic runner. I, I think he has big time ability, and I think he is still someone that Hugh Freeze can do some things with down the road. But you need someone who can come in, understand all the checks, what protections to get to, when to get to different runs, have the personnel groups need to be used, motion guys, shift guys pre-snap and just basically had that experience to see different things in games uh, that can go out and be that field general for you. I think Peyton Thorne brings that. He's a two-year captain at Michigan State. It's pretty tough. He has enough mobility to do some things in the run game, levels the ball well, has enough arm strength to push the ball down the field. I mean, he doesn't have, you know, an Anthony Richardson or a Will Levis arm, but he has enough arm strength to make all the throws. He wouldn't be playing big-time college football if he didn't. So now I think you bring someone in that you can put a lot more on. And if that Auburn offensive line has improved to the extent that a lot of us believe that it can and most likely will just because of the talent upgrades that are there, that should give whoever is at quarterback the ability to go out and perform in different ways, be it run the football, be it play action, be it RPO, and then obviously what they're going to be able to do through the straight drop back passing game. So I just think that mentally and emotionally, Hugh Freeze probably thought they needed someone that was going to be a little bit more capable. And that's why they were searching for someone that had that kind of experience. They don't want to run Robbie off. I think they still think Robbie can help them in a lot of different ways, even if Peyton Thorne's a full-time starting quarterback. So I think you'll see that. But I I think Hugh probably had the idea that Robbie just not ready to do everything he's going to need a quarterback to do right now. Hmm. Yeah, so when when Peyton Thorne initially committed, my kind of my gut reaction was, well, he he probably doesn't have as high a ceiling physically as Robbie Ashford, but I think he has a much higher floor. Am I nuts? Is that kind of maybe – part of it yeah no i mean i i think if you're just talking about ability robbie has a a lot more ability than peyton thorne does just athletically like he's more gifted there's no doubt about that um you know he'll run faster probably jump higher i think he can throw the football further uh throw it harder if that those are the things that you wanted to calculate that with it's just if you're talking about accuracy consistency understanding coverages understanding leverage understanding ball placement you know those are the things where Peyton Thorne's going to have a massive advantage uh you know I don't I don't use you know field general or managing an offense like those are not none of those have negative connotations with me because I think every quarterback does it some do it in different ways uh, so none of that ever has a negative connotation like I need a guy that can execute my offense 
and execute the things that I'm going to ask my quarterback to do. I do think Peyton Thorne is more capable of doing that right now than Robbie Ashford is. Hmm. So you touched on briefly um, about the offensive line uh, upgrade, and I don't speak for Jason often because we disagree on enough stuff. Um, but but I will speak for him here because I know that he and I are in lockstep on this. We both believe we are 100% convinced. You know, if you're shitty up front, nothing else matters. Right? You're going to have a clear, defined ceiling, and you can only be so successful. And up front, Auburn last year, at least on defense, was not great. They just over 200 yards rushing a game allowed in conference play. They got run over by Penn State and Georgia. I think Ole Miss put 400 on them. How much better can they be defensively, particularly against the run with what they've brought in? Yeah, and some of that not just, you know, the frustrating part of that is, listen, you're getting you're getting bullied off the ball and people are driving you back two, three yards. That's one thing. Like you mentioned the Penn State game. That one was probably the most frustrating for me because they essentially ran counter like 32 times. Yeah, over and over were, and over, yeah. Yeah, linebackers that were overrunning it, linebackers that were playing it underneath that shouldn't have been. Like just they didn't fit it. And so it wasn't just physically guys being overmatched. It was just not having the understanding of where and how to play it. I think they have a chance to be better this year. I don't look at the front seven as a liability. I think Justin Rogers is going to be massive. Like he is a prototypical – Big boy SEC interior defensive lineman. Uh, I think Masai and Seal Kite can help. Now, he's not the same type of a body, but he brings a little bit more quickness and a guy that can help you sideline to sideline, but also line up inside and be able to hold his own. Uh, Jalen McLeod is going to give them a presence off the edge that, that they just they, they weren't going to have without him coming in. They weren't going to have um, a guy who could really just sort of dip and rip, bend the edge, get to the quarterback, and that's going to save them from a lot of pressure packages, having to devote more bodies to try to get pressure on the quarterback. Um, so you've added a lot of depth there. Now, Austin Keys from Ole Miss, you know, I think he he is a downhill, thumper, physical linebacker. Like, he, you probably don't want him in coverage a whole lot. You don't want him in space a whole lot. But, like, he will have a role is what he's going to be able to do and how he's going to be able to help that defense. So uh, I'm not as quite as high on the kid from North Texas that they got. Like, I think he's productive and he's okay. I don't think he's any sort of a game changer like the other guys that I mentioned that you're bringing in. Um, now, you know, Tolan from from LSU is a kid that can play. He was going to probably start at LSU this year. So, you know, I think you're bringing in somebody there that has a lot of tools that if he can pick up the defense could definitely help. So, and then you have you still have guys like Cam Riley, Marquise Burks, who have all played and helped and given you good snaps. So, really, it, it's it's more I think about you know the collective talent that's going to be available to that side of the football up front. You're not going to have to be as reliant on one, two guys. You're going to have a different collection of guys that can help you in different ways at different points in time. And you have a little bit of depth, which, uh, you know, they, they've kind of struggled with that. I would have loved to have seen Jeffrey Emba back. I think he's got real big upside. I think he's somebody who could, who can still grow into a really good SEC defensive lineman, but you know, he decided to move on. I, I don't, I don't view that as being as much of a liability as, as maybe it was at times a year ago. Now, still, we hadn't seen it together, so it has right. a chance. You know, that's kind of that's with all of this. You know, Freeze and his staff they they've cleared the first hurdle, and that is go accumulate talent and try to upgrade talent on the roster. They've done that. Well, next now you got to organize it. Now you've got to teach it, and then you've got to motivate it once you do get to the season. So there there are still big obstacles that lie ahead. Yeah, uh, speaking of Freeze and the talent he brought in, real quick, scale of one to ten, what is the difference in? recruiting, whether it be philosophy or type of player or ability between Brian Harson and Hugh Freeze. I, I asked someone this the other day and the answer was like 17. Is it, is it that drastic or is it just different types of player? 
Uh, it's, I mean, it's different types of player that, that Coach Freeze and his staff have been able to get because, you know, they, they've been able to go out and they've been able to get guys that have played other places. Like, I mean, I, I think realistically, you could say Hugh Freeze and his staff, since he's arrived through the portal, this is just the portal, they've, they've upgraded. They've got the best quarterback on the team. They've gotten the best receiver, maybe the best two receivers on the team. They've gotten the best tight end on the team. They've gotten the best tackle on the team. They've gotten the best center on the team. They've got the best nose guard on the team. They've got the best linebacker on the team, and they got the best edge rusher on the team. They also got a running back that's going to help in a lot of different ways. Some of those could be on teams. Some could be third downs. Some could be in two-back sets, but Brian Batiste is going to help that offense. I'm not going to say that he's necessarily just the best back on the team, but he's going to be of great benefit. He's going to do a lot of different things. So, you know, then you have a couple of guards and tackles that may end up being better than what they had at those spots. I mean, you're, you're talking more than half the starters on this football team week one are probably most likely going to be guys that Hugh Freeze got out of the portal. So better players. Yes. I do think it's a bit of an unfair question because let's look at what Brian Harson was working against as far as the administration was concerned, how much, aid and help was he getting from the athletic director and then also where was nil when brian harson was the head coach like the guys who came in and took over on to victory and got it to what it is today there, there are multiple brilliant human beings behind that they probably should be doing something a lot more important than you know college athletics you know nil collectives but those guys deserve a ton of credit and and hugh freeze has been weaponized with that so you do have to take that into consideration but i also think the relationships that he already had in place, that his staff had in place. He's got multiple guys that have been inside this league, coached around this league, and recruited, you know, other players from other I mean, let's you're gonna tell me that Phil Montgomery didn't have a lot to do with getting Dylan Wade or two tackles from that football team. Like, yeah, he had, he had a lot to do with that. Like that, that was massive. So the relationships in different places have have obviously been able to help reel in some of that talent. But I, I just think that it's I think it's experience and I think it's wherewithal. And understanding, which is probably why Coach Freeze and his staff have been able to, and, and then you know what they've had at their disposal from a resource perspective has also helped them as well. Hmm. So we look at 2023 Auburn, and you know, on our show, we we spend a fair amount of time in kind of looking at college football through the wagering uh, aspect. Auburn has a they're getting six and a half wins from Vegas. I personally like the over a lot because I think they'll go four and zero in non-conference. They should beat Vanderbilt and probably Mississippi State, and then you're talking one more win out of the Mississippi, or I'm sorry, out of Ole Miss, A and M, Arkansas, and then obviously the Iron Bowl. Georgia and LSU are probably losses, but yeah. What what do you think the ceiling for this team is? Can they get to eight wins? Because I kind of feel like they could if some things break right. Uh, A&M obviously is a wild card. You never know what you're going to get with those guys. And um, even Arkansas, to a certain extent, with the new coordinators, a little bit of an unknown, even though they are bringing back some talented players. What what would be your best guess at six and a half wins for Auburn in 2023? I, I personally would take the over. I think they can get to seven. And I think the ceiling would be eight or nine. Um, and the reason that I say that is, and that I don't have a, I'm not going to say I have a ton of confidence in that. If you're going to, if you're going to approach it from the wagering perspective, what I would probably tell you to do, because I, I, this is the way I see the West. I think you have Alabama and LSU are going to separate, whether that be 10 wins or, you know, 11 and 12 wins. They're, they're, they're going to be a little bit different than everybody else. Then you have a bit of a log jam with everybody else in the West. And I can sit here and make a case for why Auburn will be better than those other teams. Mississippi State will be better than those teams. Ole Miss, Arkansas. 
we can go through each and every one of them. A and is the most talented roster of the rest of those teams. Do they have a culture problem? I don't know. I'm not in that building. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna accuse them of that because I'm. I'm not there. You know, I've got. They got a good collection of coaches. I'm not one who thinks that the Jimbo Petrino thing can't work. Like I. I don't believe that. I know both those guys, and and I think it can, and most likely will work. But if there's a culture problem, that that's something that can hold any team back, no matter how much talent you have. Talented quarterback, still young. Offensive line played good at times, played bad at times. In a brilliant defensive line with a ton of talent. Don't like the second and third level. Uh, Arkansas. You got a generational quarterback, but yeah, he's it's a new offense. But Dan Enos has worked wonders with other guys in the past, and he's very versatile with how he calls his offense and sets his offense up. But I I love Rocket Sanders. I don't know a ton about the other guys. You know, they brought some some receivers in that look good in the spring game, but I, I don't know 100% how they're going to be. Travis Williams takes over the defense. I think the way he'll operate it has a chance to be more successful, but is the personnel good enough? Ole Miss has got a ton of talent. I mean – you know, they go get Zakari Franklin to add to that wide receiver core. The kid they got from La Tech is going to be a solid receiver as well, and they got the best running back in college football. Should have a good offensive line. And they have probably done the best job. Well, Auburn receiver, Auburn offensive line would also be in the mix, but I would say Auburn receiver, Auburn O-line, and then what Ole Miss has done on their defensive line, like the most critical upgrades of maybe any team in the league, if not the country. Like things that had to happen and did happen. Like they got a couple big boy D-linemen that are going to make a difference. Now, do I love their linebackers? Do I love their secondary? Eh, not so much, you know, but they got two tight ends that can play, which is critical in that offense. They have quarterback depth, which not a lot of teams have. And now they've added a couple receivers who can play so – you know, can they, but can they get over the hump? I mean, Lane's defeated one team that won nine games since he's been a head coach. So, you know, he's probably going to face more than more than one team that wins nine games this year. Uh, you know, Mississippi State's got a complete revamp on offense, but I love Will Rogers, man. I think he's accurate. He can make all the throws. I think he's tough. He's a competitor. He's got, you know, Tulu Griffin back at wide receiver. They got nobody talks about Jaden Wally, who's got good film. He's played good at receiver. Experience on the offensive line, even though it'll be different. You got a great running back who, if he understands that zone scheme, that stretch play that they're going to build it on, could end up having a great year. And their whole front seven is pretty much back with depth. So, I mean, I, what I'm saying is all of those teams, any of those teams I just mentioned could go above that, but they're not all going to. So, if I were you, what I would do is I would take collectively A&M, Ole Miss, Auburn, Mississippi State, Arkansas, and I will bet all the unders on that. Because if you just look at the number, you're going to hit four out of five, <laughs> or, or even three out of five, and you're right. still good. So, I mean, I, and even if you want to take A and M out of that, I think you know you got there's a chance you're probably going to break even, but or at least just have to pay the juice on it. But I mean, I think you still have a chance of at least not losing a ton of money. So that's probably where I would go because, like, I don't think State's a wild card. I don't think Auburn's a wild card. I don't think A and M's a wild card. I think they're all wild cards after Alabama and LSU, to be honest with you. And there are so many things. That could propel those teams and so many things where those teams could nosedive, mainly that they all got to play each other. Right. And so thinking about those teams that are all sort of if and but maybe all one of those teams winning all those games is most likely not going to happen. Hmm. Okay, uh, so we'll so get you out of here. I just made you money today. Yeah, so you're good. I'll appreciate. It. I'll get you a cut. Your your three percent agent <laughs> fee. 
last one, we'll get you out of here. Kind of a fun one, maybe not as much straight on the field football, but um, one thing during the season, we kind of an old uh, rule of thumb is that home field advantage is worth three to three and a half points has been kind of the, and I'm willing to believe that for the NFL. I'm not willing to believe that when it comes to college football, I think there's a lot of places that the home field is worth more than three points specifically. And Jordan Hare, is one that I look at that, that that's not a field goal place that sure. to me is more like a six or seven point place. What, how many points do you think when Auburn is playing well and they have a good opponent, that, that place is absolutely bonkers. Like how many, how many points is an atmosphere like that? These home sec stadiums worth, do you think? Yeah. I mean, go back and look at just ask Texas A&M, you know, I had that game on the sec network. Auburn's a three win football team. I want to say it was two, three win teams coming in or a three win and a four win. And I remember Damian Craig was kind of doing his little lap around the field when they first get there. And the student section was pretty much full. Now this is two hours before kick, right? As it opened up, I mean, it it filled up instantaneously. And he was like, damn Cole, they already got students. I said, Damian, it's going to be a sellout. Like it's, it's going to be packed. And, you know, it, it was loud. It was packed. Like it just, the environment was awesome. It really was. I mean, it was incredible. So imagine, like you said, if if that's a team that's a little late in the season pushing for an SEC West title or pushing for 10 wins or, you know, you get Georgia or Alabama in there late and the fans believe you have a chance to beat them and then maybe there's some big things in front of you that actually look like they're um, attainable, it can be a special place. There's a lot of them. You know, Columbia, South Carolina is is that way probably more consistently than all the others because I everybody always asks me what's the hardest place to play in the league. Well, I played in Knoxville the year after they won a national title. That, that's the loudest place I've ever heard. We, we threw a pick six on the first play of the game, and that's the loudest stadium I've ever heard in my life. I've played in Baton Rouge at night. It's loud. It's it's crazy. You know, I've, I played in Gainesville when they were really good, when Rex Grossman was there pushing for a Heisman Trophy, and they won the SEC. Like, it's loud. It's, it gets to where you can't communicate. You know, Athens, Tuscaloosa, they're all loud, especially when the team is, is doing something special. Um, I don't think any of them – are as consistent as Williams Bryce. And the only reason I say that is because they have had much fewer of those special teams and seasons than the other teams I mentioned, yet they're consistently yeah, should be still there. those other teams. But when things are going, I don't think there's a place like Neyland. I really don't. Gainesville would be right there neck and neck, and Baton Rouge would be neck and neck. I mean, that would literally be just a juggling act between those three of – most intimidating, crazy, just raucous environments that you could ever ask for in college football. Um, it's it's hard for me to say that with Jordan Hare Stadium because I didn't I didn't experience it that way. It it benefited me, so I, I never had to deal with Jordan right. Hare Stadium. But I've had like Trevor Knight told me uh, when he was playing quarterback at A and M, he's like Jordan Hare Stadium, hardest place I've ever played. Big Twelve or SEC, like not even close. Most difficult place I played. Like McElroy's told me that. So it's. I can imagine being an opponent there when things are pretty good. It's tough, man. It's just, it's one of those places where like weird things happen. It feels like too, when, when Mm -hmm. the opposition just things doesn't go their way. So I I do think it's a little bit cyclical based on what the teams are doing. How much is it worth? So if things are in your favor, like, and I'll tell you this, there's some, like, I think Lexington's a really underrated place to play right now. Yeah. Even though it's small. Yeah. They did a great job with the renovations. It gets louder than people think they stay the whole game. Like those, they, they deserve a lot more credit than they get for what their environment is. Missouri. I I haven't experienced it many times where it's been that Vanderbilt rarely gets to be that. So I would probably take them out of the mix of what we're discussing, but those top, top tier stadiums, teams, 
I mean, I, I think it's at least six, if not a touchdown, um, just because of how it's going to change your process, what it's going to allow you to do, and what it's going to prevent you or allow you what allow you not to do, basically. And that is manage things the way that you want, communicate the way that you want. You'll be able to change things at the line of scrimmage or be able to talk to your teammates on the field, like all those things. And then, you know, guys that don't have that experience, you, we, we know emotionally it's going to affect them. So I, I would probably say closer to a touchdown. And, hmm. and I'm not somebody who understands, you know, point lines to the, ex- that's the extent that I should probably be discussing it. But, yeah, it's definitely more than a field goal. I would agree with you there. Yeah, I, I just I can't watch an Iron Bowl game at Jordan Hare and think like, oh boy, the crowd only has a three point effect on this game. Like right. it's that's all. So I think we kind of ran out of time. Obviously, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you taking the time and, and slumming it with us. Uh, <laughs> uh, I appreciate you having me. This is a lot of fun. So we'll hopefully maybe try to. Uh, I know you're busier than hell during the season, but we'll see if we can't get you on again uh, some other time, maybe before that Iron Bowl, uh, depending on how Auburn yep. does. But sounds like a plan. Uh, so thank you again, and I hope you have an awesome weekend. Thanks you, Cole Kubelik, ladies and gentlemen, uh, gracious enough to give us a little time, which we appreciate. Again, you can catch him uh, on ESPN and the SEC Network in the fall, covering games, and between now and then. Uh, McElroy and Kubelik in the morning, as well as the Cube Show on YouTube, which you should check out because it's excellent. Uh, that is it for this week. Kind of a short episode. We'll, we will be back next week with potentially a couple, uh, one or two special guests that longtime listeners may be familiar with. Next week, our 100th episode, uh, a number we never thought we'd hit, but here we are. So stay tuned and uh, check back in on that later and have a great week, everyone. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here.